Hi there and welcome to another edition of Leading with James Ashton. This podcast invites two leaders from very different organisations to compare notes about how they learnt to lead and their successes and failures at the top. Two great guests this time. First of all, Becky Spate. She only recently became Chief Executive of the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. Uh, They're the famous conservation charity with more than 1.2 million members and 2,000 employees. She's joined by Alice Bentink, who is the co-founder and general partner at Entrepreneur First, which is a venture that turns talented individuals into entrepreneurs. Over the last eight years, more than 1,200 people have been through the EF program, creating over 230 companies worth $1.5 billion in total. You can read more about Becky and Alice in the program notes. Leading is supported by Saxton Bamfile, the executive search and leadership firm with more than 30 years of experience in placing people into a huge variety of organisations and groups. Find out more about their leadership services, including search, board review and executive assessment at saxbam.com. I began this conversation asking Becky what first attracted her to the role at the RSPB. Okay, so the attraction of the role for me was that I think the RSPB is of a scale and of a steely determination, which is something I really like about it, to make a difference. And to make a difference to, I think, the biggest issues facing us today, which are climate change and, you know, extinction, extinction loss of species. And I, so I wanted to be somewhere where I could make most difference with my little bit of time, I suppose. So that's what attracted me. Because the scale is something, and correct me if these are wrong, but 1.2 million members, 2,000 employees and 12,000 volunteers and 200 nature reserves. So everyone knows the brand, but you are quietly enormous, really. Yeah, a bit too quietly enormous, I think, actually. So, um, you know, one of the things that I have discovered coming into the role and this is as I speak as someone who was in the sector previously you know it's for example the amount of work that the RSPB is doing globally it's not just working in the UK it's looking after rainforest it's working on vulture extinction in India it's working on albatross loss in the southern oceans you know there's a lot going on globally as well as in the UK its bite is quite wide actually that's something that I've really welcomed coming in Mm. and do you know what you're going to do with it yet? (laughs) <laughs> what are we going to do with it, I think, is the Sorry. question. <laughs> no, really, seriously, I think I'm really interested in what all the volunteers think, the staff think, the membership think. We've just announced we're going to go out to our membership and ask about shooting, for example, which is something that is a hot topic in our arena. And uh, I'm really interested in hearing from everyone as to where the RSPB can really bring its USP to bear, can make most difference in those issues facing us because it's an infinite agenda in Mm. a way. And so I think one of the real challenges is where do you focus your efforts? Mm. Alice, let me come to you. Entrepreneur first, perhaps not as famous as RSPB, but in your space in eight years, it's really become well known for doing things a bit differently. I think rather than me saying what it does, it might be helpful if you define it. Sure. I suppose the simplest terms possible. We take individuals who we believe could be founders of companies and they don't need to have an idea. They don't need to have a team. They don't need to have anything beyond this sort of founder potential. And over a nine month period, we work with them to build their own startup. And we primarily work with technologists. So lots of people with computer science backgrounds or physics or maths or engineering. And the idea is that very quickly we can fast track them from having founder potential and sort of um, founder hope to actually having a company of their own. So 
in doing that, together with Matt Clifford, what was the problem you were trying mm. to solve? That there aren't enough startups or the, the right people aren't setting up companies, which they should be rather than just working in an accountancy firm or something? A, a little bit of both. So um, we started eight years ago in London and now we're across Europe and Asia. And really, one of our deep beliefs was that the world is missing out on some of its best founders. And largely, whether you build a company or not seems to be dependent on the cultural norms around you. So if you're in Silicon Valley, of course, you're going to think about founding a company because everyone around you is founding a company, investing in companies and all these sort of things. But when we started in London eight years ago, that wasn't an obvious career choice. And I think actually in the last eight years, we've seen that become more and more a a sort of not obvious career choice, but a sort of acceptable career choice. And so I suppose we believe very talented individuals can have an enormous impact on the world through starting a company. And we want to sort of unlock and unleash that talent. And that was what our programme was designed to do. I had you down as either a catalyst for startups or a midwife for startups, or possibly because you put people together. It's almost like a dating company. Are any of those applicable? (laughs) It's a little bit of all of them. Mm. I mean, I think the parallels with dating are (laughs) unfortunately reasonably true in that one of the weird things that we do and one of the things that everyone said was impossible is that we take 100 strangers who have never met each other before and within eight weeks they commit to founding a company, becoming business partners, becoming legal business partners with somebody. Mm. And when you look at our stats in terms of the solidity of those teams and and the strength of those relationships, they're basically as good as people who meet in the wild organically. And and so I think when (laughs) when you think about sort of online dating where the studies now show that Mm. marriages that come from online dating are more likely to get through their first year of marriage. I think we're doing the same thing, you know, bringing individuals together who wouldn't have met each other otherwise, giving them the opportunity to connect and kind of build these lifelong Mm. uh, relationships. And tell me about the words get exchanged quite a lot, entrepreneur, founder and leader. I mean, Mm. do you view them all similarly different? I think there, there, I think there are some important differences. Now, I think as an entrepreneur and as a founder, you have to be a leader, but not all leaders are founders or entrepreneurs. Mm. But I think one of the the key differences between a eccentric tinkerer in their garage <laughs> and a and a founder is is that you have to be a leader. You have to have, I think some degree of megalomania where you want to build something that has a real impact on the world at scale and mm. and those are the kind of people that we're looking for. Mm. Megalomaniacs. Yes. Megalomaniacs. <laughs> Bring it on. Yes, Sign yeah. up here. <laughs> Any megalomania- megalomaniacs in the RSPB? I'm sure there are. <laughs> you, haven't met, you haven't met them all yet. I'm sure there are. I've definitely worked for one actually. Oh. I've worked for a megalomaniac founder and it was an absolute roller coaster. Can and it was brilliant. I loved it. But, you know, wow. Got ups and downs. Mm. Yeah. Because versus um, EF and this almost instant alchemy, you've got 130 years of heritage to consider. So do you feel you have history on your shoulder when you think about where, where next? Absolutely. So I think you know the RSPB was famously founded by women, and it was uh, it was over a hundred years ago. But they were campaigners, so they were worried about the um, trade in plumage for big, beautiful picture hats those Victorian ladies wore, and there was huge kind of concern amongst these kind of three women about this issue. And they got together, and one of the things they used to do is they used to they used to pay men to campaign for them because they were so worried about kind of you know public public perception. Mm. But they were very much campaigners, and mm. they were successful. You know, the plumage trade was changed completely by their work, really. Mm. And so I feel that sort of sense of passion and that campaigning voice very strongly. And I think that's something that the RSPB has always hung on to and will always hang on to, actually. And how do you choose, because, you know, from Woodland Trust and National Trust, you know, there are, there are examples of great campaigns. I think at Woodland, everyone was celebrating their favourite tree. <laughs> you were all over the media. Yeah. I mean, that was a really successful campaign. So how do you choose which battles to fight? I think some battles you have to fight. Whether you like it or not, it absolutely plays to your mission or your cause. So you have to be in that arena. And illegal persecution of raptors would be one for us where it's illegal to kill a bird of prey 
We know it goes on, so we have to fight to kind of get that law upheld. And then I think there are other campaigns where you're trying to find that almost that zeitgeisty thing where there is a movement that can happen because there is an issue about which a large number of people care. And you're almost just provoking that realisation in a way. And I think those are the campaigns that really take off and fly and can create social change, if mm. you like. Because you are very political. I mean, there's, there was a, I mean, last, this is before mm. your time, but for example, the Lodge Hill, which is an important site for nightingales in mm. Kent. So that might have been a housing development by now, mm. but you marshaled the troops, got the signatures and got it stopped. Yeah. So it's important to say that's a designated landscape. Uh-huh. So that's a landscape that has already been designated for, uh, for its importance for nature. Mm. So, you know, again, I would say that is a fight that we have to be in. If we exist as an organisation that is passionate about the recovery of nature, and there are designated landscapes under threat, then we need to step forward. Mm. Alice, when your team are picking the people that you will back and bring up and so on, are you looking for a sense of passion? It's obviously led by the individual because, as you say, they don't need an Mm. idea. You'll give them an idea or find somebody with an idea. I think you used some really interesting words there about provoking a realisation. And I think so much of what Entrepreneur First is doing is provoking a realisation within an individual that they could be a founder, that that is a possible career path. And so much of what we're doing is trying to raise awareness that... This is a viable, exciting career path. And I think one of the things that we always say to people when they're considering founding is this will be the steepest learning curve you could ever go on compared to any sort of normal job or any other sort of ambitious career path you can think about. As a founder, you'll be challenged every day to learn new skills, uh, new industries, whatever it may be. And so I think the kind of individuals we're looking for is, you know, you provoke that realisation and then they're willing to jump onto what will be pretty bumpy journey but one where they will learn a huge Hmm. amount and how do you run it because you have so many titles co-founder cpo and general partner um what's is it is it chief people officer no chief product officer okay okay although i do a lot with the people as well so um, we're we're about 130 people across six locations across europe that's the staff that's the full time that's our our staff and now we we have about 800 people uh, a year who are joining the program um and so i suppose my role covers running the company so making sure that we're actually doing what we said we would do but also being a general partner in a fund means that I'm part of the group that makes the investment decisions so me and my co-founder yep. Matt alongside our CFO Joe make make all those investment decisions and I think when you started out you wanted to try and blow up or redefine the venture capital model and so mm. that, that seems to be how you've done that you lead it accordingly well it was really it was sort of shocking idea to give money to an individual before they had anything and so we don't give them very much money we give them about £6,000 and that's really just given the time and space to focus fully on entrepreneurship mm. but that was really for the venture capital industry a kind of shocking idea that you could invest in somebody who didn't even have an idea Um, but now we're seeing plenty of people copying it which is very satisfying I think that's really interesting so this idea that there are people who will be good at this Whatever, whatever the product, whatever the idea, mm. they will be able to do this. I think that's really interesting because when I look at an organisation you know, like the RSPB, which is big, and I'm obviously spending a lot of time at the moment going out and meeting staff, great people exist everywhere, actually. And they, they share certain characteristics. Yes. And they might not yeah. be doing the thing that kind of is the, is the thing that they're best best able to do for the organisation is just knowing what those characteristics are and then somehow with a huge magnet <laughs> kind of going out huge there and finding magnet, them. Yes, yeah. and a bit of so structure. I'd be really of... interested to hear more about 
what those characteristics are in your view and how you get you how you get them on your magnet so um there are two things that we or three things that we looked for that are reasonably easy to assess and i think any job would want them you need to be smart good at problem solving you need to be skilled which for us means a a technology related Mm. skilled and you need to be committed you need to be ready to give up most things in your life to be a founder the bit that I suppose differentiates a founder from a leader, for mm. example, is the final thing we look for are these contrarian behaviours. So uh-huh. individuals who are super obsessive, and it kind of doesn't matter what they're obsessed about, they just can be really obsessive, who are disagreeable. It doesn't mean that they're a pain in the ass. it means that they know when to switch <laughs> yes. it on. A degree of megalomania helps, highly competitive, uh, challenges the status quo. And there's this sort of melange of characteristics that we're looking for that mm. display differently in different people and, and actually, interestingly, display very differently in women as compared to men. And so I suppose our application process is basically saying, yeah, you're smart, you're skilled, you're committed. Right, let's dig into those contrarian um, aspects. Yeah. I guess there mm. must be a degree of it. And I know a lot of the recruitment you certainly did do was through universities. And I suppose it's the equivalent of getting the tap in the street from someone saying, well, have you ever thought about MI5? It's It's... <laughs> Exactly that. <laughs> We're not quite as secret, unfortunately, <laughs> as I but um, yes, we like to think of ourselves as the um, yes. technology tap on the shoulder. <laughs> yes, yeah. Becky, do you any of those characteristics? Do you recognise any of those? We've yeah. discussed megalomania already. You, <laughs> you've set that one aside. That's not you. No, I think. I mean, I don't. I'm thinking about the sort of people I was talking about earlier. Those great people in the organisation. I would say that the people I'm finding who are great have lots of those characteristics, but maybe not in quite as strong a form as would lead them to be Mm. a a founder, for example. But they are able to work within a big organisation like the RSPB and somehow still be an entrepreneur. So somehow find Mm. that kind of project idea and kind of negotiate it through all the kind of different things they have to negotiate through in a big organisation and make it fly. And and you do want lots of that, actually. I mean, that is such a skill. It's a huge skill. It's a huge skill. And and I think just finding those people can make an enormous difference to what a big organisation like ours whose centrifugal force can be a bit kind of like, you know, risk-averse, kind of, you know, status quo, Mm. we've always been great, let's carry on being great kind of stuff. You know, to be able to find people who can disrupt that and actually Mm. kind of ask those important questions and make stuff happen, most importantly, in what can be quite a difficult environment at times, you know, that's really important. And I think a lot of those characteristics are those those that they would Mm. reflect. So what's your management style? Oh, God, that's such a awful question isn't it I... wasn't that in the notes <laughs> yeah but I, I did I thought the same I, 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 did, yeah. <laughs> I did think about it but I, I'm strongly of the belief that you do have to bring different styles to bear in different occasions I think you have to be flexible and what's interesting is I think a lot of founder megalomaniacs aren't that flexible actually which may be why they succeed so I think that flexibility is important I think I think everyone has a default style and my default style is definitely I think to listen to people and to build up from that as opposed to impose and to do a lot of horizon scanning do a lot more horizon scanning that I think than I think a lot of big organizations inherently do so I lift your sights and look around what's outside absolutely happening and that's, outside that's where you spot yeah. the gaps and you get the context mm. right for what you're trying to do and I think the danger in a big organisation, as I was saying earlier, is that you just plough on. Because what is it? Can you give us a health check for, for bird life in the UK? I mean, the, the charity talks about about 40 million birds being lost in the last three or four decades. Yeah. But there are bright spots, I think, with examples of things that were very, very close to extinction. The white-tailed eagles had been lost and have now back and breeding in numbers in Scotland, for yes, example. So yes. there are there's gloom, but there's also bright spots. Yes, but there's quite a lot of gloom, actually. Right. How, how <laughs> much gloom? How gloomy? <laughs> So, How gloomy so is it? There's a great report that comes out every three years called the State of Nature Report, 
that's 70 organisations, pool all their data and say what is going on. And that shows a trajectory of decline over the last 50 years. And that, you know, when you look just over the last 10 years, it's definitely not letting up. So once common birds like lapwing, which is so common that it had a common name, a peewit, that has dropped drastically in numbers. Um, maybe stabilising a little bit at the moment when it's not quite clear, but really low numbers now. And same with beautiful charismatic birds like the curlew, which has that lovely kind of lingering call that you hear in, you know, a, a kind of upland area. You know, that, that has had a crash in numbers as well. And turtle doves are right on the edge. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of bad news, but... But there are some spots of, of, of hope where we know if we get habitat management right, if we kind of manage things like kind of predator impacts can be quite big and we can stabilise populations. But I think when we looked at all the data in that report, there are some big drivers that are shaping this overall context. Mm. And they are things like climate change, the impact of climate change on species, the impact of agricultural policy. So I won't say farming because there are some farmers who do fantastic work for wildlife. But the imp overall impact of agricultural policy over the last 50 years has really changed our landscapes mm. and made them far less um, inviting to wildlife and far less habitable. Um, and things like, you know, other factors like pollution, for example, um, the use of pesticides, you know, they've all had an impact. But these big drivers are causing this big overall decline. And mm. that's what we need to turn around. So mm. I'm quite often, you know, looking at one of our reserves where, for example, we've got a very successful population of lapwing that's doing very well but that is not enough you know it will not be enough to have an arc of a population existing on a lovely little protected nature reserve we need to see lapwing back in our wider countryside if that population mm. is going to really stabilize and then thrive mm. so a lot of the work we do is about trying to achieve recovery for nature on a much wider scale mm. okay alice to seg from birds to tech the tech environment seems quite healthy you are a breeding ground there's a lot of breeding ground of, of tech but i'm interested in your view if on, on tech leadership because quite often the people who are leading the big tech companies don't seem to get it if you look at some of the big platforms it, there's the move fast and break things mentality and it's not our fault gov what, what do you what do you say to that i think tech is in a really interesting position at the moment where if you look at the very big tech companies they are suddenly have having to respond to and behave like many of the companies they were trying to resist becoming. Um, and it's largely because of the, the kind of significance of their impact that they're having on on the global population. And, and we've seen this with various elections, and I'm sure we don't want to get into, into that now. Yeah. But I think it, it is interesting because so much of building or so much of the culture around tech startups is about challenging the status quo, is about challenging existing leadership styles and, and existing leaders and, uh, and norms. And so I think it's really interesting to see the the current wave of the, the Googles and Facebooks and Amazons having to come to terms with what it means to be leaders, these founders becoming leaders of very big, culturally important companies. And I suppose the companies that we're working with are still relatively small. And I think in the early days, you have to be in the leadership mindset of a startup where you are constantly challenging the status quo, you are moving fast and breaking things. Mm. I think unfortunately, or, or fortunately, as, the, as companies grow, you do have to change your leadership style and, and take into account that you aren't a startup anymore you're actually part of the status quo and i think that's a reasonably hard yes. shift of founders to to make yeah. you either you either shift in style or, or actually you um you change the boss i've written a lot on on academics these university spin outs i mean quite often the academic who who came up with a brilliant idea at the lab bench is mm. definitely not the C ceo material going forward but some of them do insist on giving it a go well i suppose that is something that we are actually keen to challenge i think that Yes, the majority of academics probably aren't founders in the way that the majority of most people probably aren't yeah. founders. And I suppose we see our role at Entrepreneur First as finding the academics who are both 
academically very brilliant, but also CEO potential. You know, one of our internal values is that we believe in technologists. We believe that technologists can make amazing yep. founders. And if you look in the US, you know, some of the biggest and greatest companies, whether it be Microsoft, whether it be Facebook, were created by people with technology backgrounds. Um, and I would love to see in the UK us really celebrating those with technology backgrounds and celebrating the fact that they can be leaders and founders. So that's something that we we see a lot of our mm. most successful companies, the CEOs, do have technical backgrounds. And and what was it that you and Matt both gained along the way? Because you were founders in your own right. And mm. now I would say suddenly, it's not suddenly at all, but you have hundreds of companies in the, in this portfolio and they're looking to you or you're, you know, leaning over to them and saying, actually, guys, this is how you do it. One of the really nice things about having our portfolio sort of grow and age with us is that they're a great group of people for us to learn from as much as, as the other way around. Founding EF has been a, a funny journey because it's a sort of a meta founding journey. We founded a startup that founds startups. Um, but I think that does mean that we do have to think really carefully about how we lead and how we manage and what role modelling we're doing, not just mm. for our staff and for our team, but for the hundreds of individuals that are going through EF every year. And so we try to make sure that we are role modelling the values mm. that we would want our companies to uh, to have, whether it's around diversity and inclusion, whether it's around ethical behaviour. But I do think, and I suppose this is one of the separations between management and leadership, where I think as a leader, you do need to think about what you're role modelling pretty much all the time and yeah. make sure that you are setting the example that you would want others to, to follow. Becky, tell me about life on the front line. I mean, how often are you out there with the volunteers? I'm interested in the relationship with the volunteers because these are people who love birds who have probably been involved for years and years and um and you have to get them on side get to know them know what yeah. makes them tick so i spend well never enough but quite a lot of my time out there just been in scotland for a week actually visiting some of our reserves and our work in scotland and Yes, I think it's incredibly important. I think it's where I find out what's really going on, <laughs> what the real issues are. So all the stuff that doesn't come yeah, up to you on yeah, the, your, yeah, yeah. the emails all you're that, not copied into. That. That's yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's that's really important. And it's mm. also where you get to see where the real work is happening as well. So ch actual changes on the ground um, in habitat and species mm. numbers and so on. Yeah. I think volunteering is an incredible thing, actually. It's an incredible thing for somebody to say, I will give you some of my precious time for nothing because I really believe in what you're mm. trying to do. You know, It's often about a particular place or a particular species. It's not generally about the organisation so much. And I think so our volunteers cover a whole range of people. There are people who have probably taken retirement or some form of retirement and, and want to stay active mm. in, in particular and, and kind of have a, a cohort of, of friends. And so they will come and they will take part in, in work on reserves the ways as well. But then there are also kind of some fantastic what we call youth volunteers, long-term volunteers who will come. We often have accommodation available and they will come maybe for a month stint or six weeks and do some important kind of scientific survey work, for example, help us with that. Oh, it's almost um, like the VSO sort of come and come for a month yeah, or two and, yeah, yeah. and really and then, live it. And then, and then maybe move on to another reserve, move mm. on to something else. And that's really interesting. So those people fascinate me because they are often young. They will be probably of a similar generation maybe to some of the people you're, you're working with. Their motivations are quite different. So they're often, sometimes they're trying to get a job in the conservation sector and it's a way of getting some experience and getting into that. Sometimes it's just about wanting to explore their world and kind of contribute to it. And they're a, they're a really interesting generation. And obviously that generation in particular is, is very energised around climate change compared to previous generations. And you really see that coming through. So wanting to do something really physical to make a difference difference to that. Mm. And I think that's incredibly powerful. I, I often feel very motivated myself, actually, by 
meeting and inspired by meeting those people mm. because they're doing great stuff. Mm. But I think you're absolutely right. Our volunteer workforce is far larger than our staff workforce and we could not do what we do without without those volunteers. So mm. it's incredibly important that they feel connected with what we're trying to achieve mm. and feel valued and that they are it's it's a it's a, a two-way relationship. Mm. You've got a real sort of army, army of yeah, people behind it's you. It's great. It's great. And it's a wonderful <laughs> feeling. It's not just it's not just about that physical support and obviously kind of, you know, in, in a way they're saving us money. In they're saving the cause money by giving their time for free. So it's not just about that. It's absolutely about feeling that when you stand up and kind of make an intercession to try and change a policy or you comment on something, that there, there is this whole raft of people who want to back that and want to see nature recovering. And that feels very powerful. I suppose if you were in the tech space, you'd be talking about scalability. That's that's the word. It sounds they're, wonderfully scalable. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Volunteers, well, it's yes. totally scaled. Yeah. 200 nature reserves. You know, they have got, yeah. uh, they've scaled. Entrepreneur First, is that is that scalable? Because looking at your website, I mean, the portfolio, as you say, you keep close to them. There's so many names on there. There must be hundreds of companies, mm. Brolly, Cargo, Mate, Delta Block. I mean, it's like a huge um, address book. Well, I suppose one of the one of the ideas behind venture capital that we wanted to challenge was that you couldn't scale venture capital. Uh, and I suppose we have we've tried to to really challenge that and show that you can. And I suppose one of the key things about our model is that the way that we make our investment decisions is pretty programmatic. We sort of have a machine that gathers data and allows us to make very robust investment decisions rather than the old VC model, which is, you know, I'm a old guy, usually, who knows lots about something and I will mm. I will kind of say whether whether this is yes or no or not. Inherently the idea behind EF is that we want to scale venture capital, we want to scale what we do. At the moment we've done that by entering new countries and we're in uh, Paris and Berlin and uh, Singapore and Bangalore. I think you're bigger in Singapore than London now I mean, in terms of volume. We're at the same same size yes, in yeah, Singapore yeah. As, in, as in London mm. and I suppose one of our real beliefs is that we want EF to be accessible for all these untapped founders around the mm. world um, and I suppose we're going to keep scaling until we get to the point where we can actually access all those individuals. What about failures? Because there must be some in the portfolio that have got, that have quietly gone away. And do you do you recycle the people and try them with another, pair them off again, another date yeah. or, or something? Does that, does that happen a lot? Well, I think that one of the really interesting cultural trends that we're seeing is a reprogramming of what failure means. Yep. And I think the really nice thing about attempting to become a founder at the moment is that the cost of failure is very, very low. So as you were saying, you want to hire, organisations want to hire entrepreneurial talent. So I think even 10, 15 years ago, being a failed founder was seen as something that was pretty negative. Now it means that actually your job prospects are even even better. That said, we do actually try to recycle a lot of the talent that comes through. So you mentioned Brolly, Phoebe, one of the founders of this insurance tech startup. She actually did Entrepreneur First twice. The first time it didn't work out, so she came back and joined us again. And we see ourselves as talent investors. We're investing yep. in people and we want to maintain that relationship with them for, for throughout their career, really. But what about EF failure? Has there been anything that you and Matt have got wrong in the eight oh, years? God, yeah. <laughs> Just give us a short <laughs> How much list. How time do we have? Just... Uh, well, I think in the in the early days, we made in particular sort of every every mistake that, that you could founding a company. And I think one of the very common mistakes we see is from our founders that we also made was in the early days, we went out and spoke to people within the industry. We went to sp- speak to venture capitalists and angels to ask them whether our idea was any good. And of course, our idea was basically saying, we want to change your industry and they said, no, this is a terrible a really idea. idea. <laughs> yes, no. Do not do this. If we had listened to them, we would never have built Entrepreneur First. Mm. We weren't talking to our customer. And so it was only when we went out to universities, we started speaking to PhDs and postdocs and hearing from them what they wanted. And they basically said to us, I would love to be a founder, 
but I don't have a team. I don't have an idea. So, so I can't. And so I suppose that was kind of one of the key moments for us where we realized, you know, speaking to your customers is the number one most important thing that a founder can do. And I suppose having done this for eight years and having had now close to 2000 people go through EF, still talking to customers is one of the most important things that I do. Mm-hmm. Um, and maintaining that feedback loop, as you, yeah. you were saying, Becky, going out and speaking to volunteers and yeah. people on the ground, that really is the only way you truly understand mm-hmm. what's going on, how to build and develop the organization and, and lead it in the yeah. future. Yeah. Becky, I want to go back to early motivations because I can go backwards in your CV, RSPB, Woodland Trust, National Trust, lots of things with trust. (laughs) Trust is running through your career. It's all natural world. It's the preservation, conservation. What got it started? I think I had a really kind of natural world childhood, for want of a better term. So I grew up in Dorset and we were always kind of camping or fishing or kind of wandering off, you know, up dry riverbeds and all that kind of stuff. So I very much grew up with that. Um, and my mother was particularly keen on things like, you know, wildflowers. I can remember being on long, long wildflower walks, thinking this is very dull, but actually learning quite a lot. And so I think that was always with me. And then I kind of, I kind of meandered off, and I did an English degree eventually instead of geography. Always <laughs> uh, come in handy. <laughs> and um, and I ended up working in local government, and then as a management consultant for a while after I'd done an MBA. And and I loved all that. I loved the buzz of it. That buzz was fantastic. But I just got to the stage where I it wasn't enough for me. I felt I wanted to do something that to me felt like it really mattered. And for me, that was getting back into the natural environment, I suppose, and and trying to kind of fight the big fight that I think is going on over that at the moment. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what then took me on the trajectory back into that world. And when were you first in charge? <laughs> Well, not on the not on the wildflower walk, surely. <laughs> no, no, probably attempted to be. <laughs> um, I, I can rem- I can remember at school being in charge quite a lot, <laughs> and I hope in the nicest possible way. But I really enjoy leading something because I really enjoy making a difference, and I think I can make most difference by doing that. So it's it's motivated by that, I think, as much as anything. I suppose there was opportunity at National Trust with it being such a, a vast organisation to be in charge. I mean, you were, I think property manager at Stourhead, I would mm. say, which was a, which is a this vast estate in, in Wiltshire. Yes. So that is probably a village in its own right. So that there's a degree of where I guess that's a team within a team at the trust. You've got full-time people, you'll have the volunteer network as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think this there is there's always something for me about having a having a unit of some sort, whether that's kind of geographical or a team or you know, that's where you can that's where you can really make a difference. And I think um Starhead was a fantastic job, but it was an example of what you were talking about. Actually, somebody took a took a risk with me because I knew nothing about land management. I knew nothing about art history. I really was not, you know, um, the the obvious candidate for that. But you were working those consulting skills very hard then, and then throwing in the English degree. I had some transferable skills. Yes, I could. I I had passion for what I wanted to do, and there was somebody out there who thought, okay, we'll take a bit of a punt, Mm. you know, and that's that's what got me into that world, which is a world. It's very competitive, actually. A lot of people don't get into it at that stage. Mm. Alice, in a way, you took a punt on yourself because you, by now you could have been a very important cog in the Google machine, but you <laughs> didn't sign the contract and thought, stuff this, I'm going to start something on a piece of paper with, with uh, my pal Matt. Indeed, Effectively, yes. if I've got that right. Well, yeah. I don't, but you must have thought. <laughs> I don't know about um, how successful I would have been at Google, but yes. I was 25 when I started Entrepreneur First, and the reason that I did it was uh, broadly, I knew if I didn't do it then, I, I, I would never come back to it. And I'd always wanted to start my own thing. I'd been very involved in young enterprise at school and in um, social enterprise at university. Mm. Knew this was something I wanted to do, and it felt like, yes, I was clueless. Yes, I had no money, no network, no 
sort of resources or skills that would enable me to be a good founder. But the one thing I did have was absolutely nothing else in my life that would kind of hold me back. Mm. And Mm. I just knew it was going to get harder as I got older. And I think it took me a very long time to learn how to lead and how to manage. And Mm. I think Matt and I were lucky that Entrepreneur First actually grew quite slowly in the early years. It took us about three years to work out what we were doing. No one would give us any money. Um, So it was very small for three years. And I think actually that gave us the time to sort of learn and develop ourselves as as leaders and as managers. But yeah, I think there is something wonderful about the various stages at your various points in your life where you can take extreme risk Um, and you know if it hadn't worked out what was the worst thing that was going to happen you know I could have gone and got a job and so I think the more that we can help people understand you know what are the trade-offs between the risk and reward of of entrepreneurship the better because I think there's never been a better time to try and experiment with being a founder yeah and prior to that just to touch on I mean you you worked in the Tony Blair office for a little while as an Mm. intern I think and this was a period when he was transitioning out of number 10 from prime minister to whatever else and mm. w- what your observations of that was very much a leader setting his own path I guess and doing something in a way that maybe previous PMs hadn't done yeah I mean again it was a sort of a startup situation but this time with a, a world leader <laughs> and I think just being having the opportunity to be around uh, a very senior world leader and see how they live their life and how they behave and it was a, it was a wonderful learning experience and I think as you're sort of um growing up if you like and as you're uh, building and developing your own skills the more that you can either watch other leaders in action or as as Mm. you were saying get thrown into leadership positions that you probably aren't qualified for I think it is one of the best ways to learn Mm. yes and the McKinsey years teach great skills I think and people do emerge as leaders but it's not always what they get out of those years it can be quite consulting in that way can be quite you recommend advice you observe and so on but you're not necessarily taking a lead I was, I was you, very junior, so I definitely wasn't taking a lead. But I think you're right in that McKinsey taught me how to think and taught me how to think in a very structured way and how to problem solve, which as a lifelong skill has been invaluable. I think for anyone who is in a big professional organisation, how long can you stay in that sort of organisation before it sort of removes some of your founder potential? And I think there is a pr- sort of tipping point. I was in McKinsey for two years, but we see this from individuals who apply to us from professional services or big corporations, that once you get sort of five, six years, years, you actually begin to lose some of your risk appetite. And yep. a lot of what you're taught is risk aversion. Because obviously, mm. if you're working with clients, or yeah. if you're an accountant, or whatever it may be, the last thing the company wants is you to start taking random risks. And also any of those big organisations, you pay at a certain level so that you don't look outside. Yeah, That's it makes the it thing. very hard to change I interview. I often interview CEOs, particularly senior lawyers, for, when they've done 30 years, and they're almost apologising for it. They say, well, I've had lots of different jobs in those 30 years. But you just know that yeah. once you're on that treadmill of you know of of, of the um the bonus or whatever then people are less likely to look outside yeah very very hard yeah. to get off that treadmill yeah. you get locked into a certain yeah. lifestyle but very helpful for you i think kevin sneeder who's now managing partner was an early supporter of ef yeah so kevin, helpful kevin to sneeder was absolutely fantastic he's uh, he was the head of the london office when he, when um matt and i were there and he was basically instrumental to getting entrepreneur first off the ground for which we're immensely grateful and as you went global he went global Indeed, so, yes, yes. <laughs> running the world. Yes, Becky, tell me about the, so uh, how you got into those roles, but what about what you learnt on the way, the skills that you needed to pick up or maybe mentors and people that, that said, you know, try it this way or, you know, look at it that way. Yeah, so I, it was interesting what you were saying about management consultancy and, and observing. So I think I in through my management consultancy, I observed a lot of leaders in, I was often working on big mergers, so they were often in very stressful situations and just watching how they responded to that and what they chose to do and what they chose not to do was very instructive, I thought. And I think you learn a lot from doing that. I think you said something else interesting, which is about making the leap. 
you know, mm. when do you make the leap? And I, my experience was not dissimilar in that I took a huge pay cut when I went to work, went to work, to work for the National Trust and take on that role at Stourhead. But I was in a position where I was in my 20s and I just thought, well, it's not that long since I was existing on, you know, one can of baked beans for a week kind of thing. I can do this. You know, this is not mm. a problem. And so I think there is a moment when you can do it. And if you miss that moment, you are then probably into the kind of 30 years somewhere. It does get yes, the gravy yeah. Forget much the beans, harder. it's on yeah. the gravy <laughs> It gets much harder. So I think there is something about listening to your inner voice and seizing that moment when it's speaking to you. I think mentoring is important, actually. And I have been mentored, I would say, by a lot of women, actually, along the way. So quite a lot of the work I did, certainly early on, was was quite male dominated and there was often a woman who would sort of spot me and you know work with me or just give me a bit of a helping hand at times and I think I've also had women who have spotted me in the organisation and then kind of extracted me and kind of given me more mm. interesting stuff to do I think that's really important it's, saying, it's just having somebody there at the right time to kind of give you that sense of inspiration or support or, you know, make sure that you're asking the awkward question if you need to ask the awkward question. Mm. I'm less of a fan of kind of formal mentoring relationships. I have been in mentoring relationships, you know, and I sometimes I just get really irritated by them because, you know, it's having the right conversation at the right time somehow becomes more difficult. But I think if you're somebody who enjoys relationships, and I do, you can often just from your network find those right conversations to have at the right time. With so the you right do people. listen, but just not Absolutely. at 10 o'clock every Wednesday yeah, or something exactly, like that. Exactly, exactly, you know? exactly that. Yeah. And I, I think encouraging people to build that kind of network for themselves yeah. is really important. Yeah, Alice, I think EF and you, you're fans of coaching. Is yes. that is that for you guys leading EF or is it for the portfolio founders or both? Oh, both. I think every, everyone should have everyone should have a coach, uh, which I think is very different from mentoring. Yes, and I, yeah. I agree with your point around all my best mentors are sort of you know, you might do two or three weeks of really intensive work with them and then not speak to them yeah. for a year. And yeah. then and that, that sort of works really well. In terms of coaching, so Matt and I have had a leadership coach for the last five years and it really has been one of the most important investments we've made in ourselves as we used to be very junior leaders, very young leaders, um, and now slightly more battle-scarred leaders. But having a coach who can, in particular, help you recognise some of the behaviours that you're displaying repeatedly and sort of flagging that to yourself, and particularly in a co-founding relationship as well, where Matt and I see her both together and separately. And I think any sort of co-leadership situation where you are working very closely together, it's it's a fantastic way to sort of evaluate how you're doing um, and, and kind of build trust and, and build that relationship. For our founders on the programme, we have what we call venture partners who are sort of internal mentors. And these are exited entrepreneurs who have the battle scars, who have mm. been through the process that these new founders are going through. And I suppose that's the sort of weird mixture of both mentoring and coaching. They're mentoring on specific topics, such as how to get your customer, but they're also coaching and helping these sort of new founders understand that what they're going through, the stress, the emotional strain, is actually very normal and part and parcel. So yeah, I think no one can lead in a vacuum. And I think the more that you can surround yourself with people both within and outside of the organisation who can within the organisation, be truth to power and really tell you what's going on and where you might be screwing up. And then externally, people who can give you perspective and help you understand yeah. what, what's yeah. normal. I've always thought co-leadership really takes some working out. It's probably a lazy mm. analogy to liken it to a marriage, but you have to... There's so many instances where two people at the top just, just doesn't work. So it really is either to make it work, they're getting the help you describe behind the scenes or they're just innately 
understand they're not greedy with the role if that's sharing and you have to have a a huge amount of trust as well i think if you don't have deep-seated belief that your founder is 100 percent nailing what they're doing and you can kind of step back and trust them to do that i think it's very hard to make it work and i feel very lucky that i've got to work with matt for so long and i think we're very lucky that we've had a very good founder relationship and it is a little bit like a marriage in a way that you you get in what you put out and we recognize when we haven't been spending enough time together and Mm. have to spend more time uh, particularly when we're traveling around the world a lot have to make sure that we do spend more time together and i think to be honest i wouldn't want to do it without him it's so much more fun so much less lonely you know you have that person you can go and grumble with when (laughs) when things are doing so well yeah Yeah. and i think sometimes it's the institution that carries that structure up with them so looking at i mean oracle for a a long time has had two people at the top sap and it's not just tech but there are these sort of duos you know when they're big organisations do that Becky I should come back to the thing you started you mentioned at the top the review of game bird shooting I'm just curious to touch on that so that was something that's had a lot of headlines and is this something that has come up from the organization or you've decided you need to take a different view on that but they're both really yeah. i think the rspb is neutral on shooting mm. in our in our royal charter it says we are neutral on shooting so we don't have a view one way or the other on the ethics of it but i think we felt there was increasing evidence available of some suspected ecological impacts, Mm. particularly of intense shooting. So some, for example, driven grouse shooting is very intense now, happens on moorland and is kind of causing impacts in terms of things like burning on, on blanket bog, which we know how important peat's going to be in terms of carbon and climate change. And in terms of kind of medication, medicated grit going down for the grouse in, in vast numbers. So some kind of feeling that there was probably ecological impact happening there. In terms of kind of game bird releases, we estimate there are about between 40 and 50 million birds released every year Mm. for intensive game bird shooting. Again, the suspicion is that that is having an ecological impact. You know, it's providing easy pickings for predators, for example, for foxes, carrion crows. So their numbers may be increasing as a result of that, which will then impact on things like breeding wading birds, for example, having their chicks eaten. So we want to do an evidence review and just see across the whole spectrum of shooting, because although you have that intense very intense form of shooting at one mm. end of the spectrum. You have a lot of kind of rough walk-up shooting, rough shooting going on on, on farms at right. the other end of the spectrum. And we just wanted to look across the piece, look at the evidence and come up with a set of conservation principles that we can use to evaluate, is there an ecological impact that is negative or not? And that's simply what we're trying to I do. See. And there are definitely very emotive issues. So I've there spotted w- that. Yeah. <laughs> so there, will, there are some people who, for example, are campaigning to ban driven grouse shooting at the moment. Mm. That's not where we are. At the moment, we're mm. saying it should be licensed and regulated. Um, and there are some people who think that shooting is, is fantastic for the countryside. We want to kind of really mm. look at the science, look at the evidence, which is what the RSPB does and really come up with a set of principles mm. that we can use. I should touch on the money as well. I mean, your revenue is about £145 million a year, which mm. seems like a, a, a great number and, and growing. I mean, as I've interviewed charity bosses before, do you see yourself as chief fundraiser, if you like? Do you have as part of your role to make sure that you're out there metaphorically rattling the tin or do you have to take a sort of higher strategic view? Uh, both. Yeah. So, I mean, absolutely. I think if you're chief exec of any any big organisation, actually, you're absolutely one of the figures in the landscape for that organisation. So one of the things I have to do is talk to people who might be interested in helping us financially to do the work we do. And I do that with a glad heart. They're usually really interesting conversations, actually. But also, I'm, I'm responsible for taking that strategic overview as well. Fundraising is just one part of that. So mm. I do both, really. Mm. And Alice, you fundraise as well. You weren't always going to, but now you have 
have a fund originally, you might have been a charity if it wasn't so difficult to set it up. Yeah, we started off as a community interest company, tried to be a charity. The Charitable Commission said that what we were doing was not technically very charitable. But really it was because the feedback we'd had was so strong that this wasn't going to work. We thought it was going to have to be a sort of not-for-profit education company. Really, it took us three cohorts of of individuals Mm -hmm. and um, three years to show that we could make this work. We now have about $200 million under management, and that's money that we deploy into the companies that we produce. Uh, And we do that in a very high-frequency way, so we're deploying reasonably small amounts of capital into lots of companies. But yes, it took us took us a while to do that. And Matt, my co-founder, is an absolutely amazing fundraiser and, and builds these relationships with either high net worths or institutions um, so that we do have enough money to invest in the companies. I wonder, I wonder if some of those VCs who told you on the coffee round that this this wouldn't at all work are now the ones putting money into your um, your fund. Hilariously, they are, which is very <laughs> satisfying. And Alice, <laughs> our motivations now, eight years on, are you, st- are you still as up for it as you were or where, where do you lead this organisation next? It's funny because it is eight years in and I probably didn't imagine that when we started this I'd still be doing it eight years later. Four times McKinsey after (laughs) your two years of McKinsey. That's (laughs) the longest thing I've ever done in my life (laughs) but it really does still feel like we're just getting started and when we think about our mission which is to transform the lives of the most impactful people that's a sort of endless mission and we've actually structured the company legally so that we don't have to sell it we don't have to exit it in the sort of usual way that entrepreneurs do Mm. there are other ways that we can satisfy our investors and so really this is a sort of a lifelong mission for me and for Matt if you think about some of the most enduring institutions in the world they're often charities Mm. or they're education institutions like Harvard or Cambridge. Thinking about EF as a sort of talent institution, Mm. there's no reason why this can't be an enduring To uh, outlive even you. To outlive even me. You know, these young people, mainly, who were sort of starting these companies, Mm. do you think they're starting starting companies with a different kind of ethos? Um, They're much more interested in impact than money, which is something we actually have to to nudge them towards being interested in money. I mean, our our thing is that we don't... Sorry, this is a question I wanted to ask. No, but you should. Well, we'll... <laughs> we don't do we don't do social enterprise, but a lot of our companies have huge positive impacts on the world. Yes. So um, we've got a company called Sepia in Singapore, and it's a membrane company, and it's a membrane for a water water filtration. Now that is very much a commercially mm. focused company that is trying to make money, but it will reduce energy consumption by sort of yes. five five six times yes. through using this new membrane. So you do have a really positive environmental impact, despite the fact that it is a commercially focused company yeah and because so many of our companies use sort of deep technology cutting-edge frontier technology um, and they're able to solve existing problems in new ways Mm, and often mm. much more efficient ways Mm. we see that there's normally a bunch of very positive impacts that come from the kind of companies that we're building Mm. even though that's not not their raising no no, no, but i think i it's so it's interesting so one thing is the startup thing you know you're focused on kind of finding Mm. you know founders and startups but i think it sounds like to me you're also enabling a different kind of company to a certain extent which has got this sort of I would say, a quite a holistic view of what it's trying to do. Yeah. Yeah, and I think one of the things... Or more of that, maybe. Yeah, we're yeah. trying to push this idea that scale really matters mm. and that, um, you know, starting a, a small company is pretty much as hard as starting a, a big company. Mm. So, you know, go, go large from day one. Uh, yeah, I suppose for us, the things that matters is sort of global impact and, and scale. Mm. Um, and we do find there are a bunch of positive impacts that come mm. from that. I mean, I suppose just to talk about the opposite side as well, I think because a lot of the companies we work with use artificial intelligence... Yeah. 
that's a widely talked about yes, negative yeah. social impact. Yeah. But I suppose what I would counter that is that if the UK has an opportunity to be one of the leading lights in artificial intelligence, I think it's really important um, from a political point of view, from mm. a cultural point of view, that we push on that as hard as we can. Mm. We know that China is making leaps and bounds ahead in AI. The US is doing some great stuff mm. as well. But I do think the, US, the UK does have an opportunity to be a leader in artificial intelligence. And I think there's a there's a sort of imperative that that is the case as well. Mm-mm. Yeah, and the, so- the social impacts of AI are wide and varied, and we don't even know what they are yet. You and, know? and some of them are fantastic, yeah, and yeah. we have a lot of med tech companies, mm-hmm. companies that are working in healthcare that are improving the rates of diagnoses, improving cancer um, outcomes. So there's it, it's a really careful and interesting balance, mm. and definitely in the conservation world, you know, that use of data and data evidence is just huge now, and is mm. just absolutely solving problems for us much faster than we've ever yeah. been able to solve them before. It's so important. It was interesting how much you talked about sort of ev- evidence-based mm. yeah. studies rather than it being yeah. opinion-based, which yeah. is so important. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And Becky, just finally, the, I'm interested in those, you talked about how, where the mentors were down the organisation. Are there people um, now that you see that you help pull up and what's the advice you give to them if they want to have your job in 10 or 20 years? You know, I, that wasn't the route I took. I didn't think I want to be a CEO in 10 or 20 sure. years. So I would find it quite hard to give that kind of advice. But I, I, I would say to people that you have to kind of follow your instinct, follow your passion. Mm. If, if it means asking difficult questions and being entrepreneurial in the organisation, then do it. Mm. And, you know, make sure that you... Yeah, you build those relationships all mm. along the way mm. because they are the things that will sustain you mm. and hold you in good stead, I think. If you're in the kind of sector I'm in and you kind of try and just climb the greasy pole, at some stage at some stage you'll get found out you slip and down you'll it. slip down it. Yes. Okay. You know, and so it's that it's that network and I think being asking the difficult questions along the way. Okay, great. Uh, Becky Spate and Alice Benting, thanks so much for the conversation. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton, which is supported by Saxton Bamfile, the executive search firm and leadership advisor. Find out more about their services at saxbam.com. You can also find more episodes of Leading on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, including a conversation with Paul Geddes, the former boss of Direct Line, about the marketeer's approach to selling insurance. I guess one of the beliefs coming in uh, that I challenged was that this was a commodity, that, that actually it's just like electricity and gas. And electricity and gas really are commodities. When you go into a room, you don't go, oh, well, that's fantastic. That's, uh, you know, that's SSE's electricity. I really like the look of that. You know, whereas insurance genuinely is important and good versus bad insurance is, is meaningfully different. I've had a flood myself. Uh, if you have a car accident, you really do care who you're with and what they, what they then do when you have an accident. And the whole direct line repositioning is to say, okay, let's make better insurance. Yeah. This is my background as a Procter & Gamble trained marketeer where the first job is make your product better.